If we could turn back to that reading that we just had from the Gospel according to Mark, and let's pray together as we sit. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God who loves us. Help us to be those this morning who hear your word and find life, because we ask it for Jesus' namesake and for his glory. Amen. In his one-act play called Death Knocks, Woody Allen constructs a humorous scene revolving around an ordinary man called Nate Ackerman who one night sees death arrive. In the story, death is personified. It's a character that looks just like him. But strangely, death is not portrayed as a frightening figure, not the grim reaper, but rather an uncoordinated and incompetent clown. Death tries to climb in through the window and he stumbles and falls and then he arrives in the lounge room and his sickle collapses. He tumbles around complaining of his ailments and how hard life is for him and then try as he does to take the life of Nate. Nate actually sidesteps death. He challenges death to a game of chess And then Jim Rummy, he cheats death and gets to live for another day. The point is that death is not frightening at all. It has no real power. It can be fought off and held back and laughed at. But can it? Because the the author Woody Allen is far more honest when he goes on later to express his real feelings about the grave. And he writes this. I'm preoccupied with the tragedy of life, the fact that in the end you're screwed by death. Death is absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders everyone's accomplishments meaningless. He went on to say this, he who says he's not afraid to die is a liar. The terrible truth is that every single person in this building will one day die. One day, your coffin will be met at the crematorium or lowered at the gravesides. And the final words will be ashes to ashes, dust to dust. All of us are in the crematorium queue. It's why the undertaker signs the letter, yours eventually. And when death does come through the window of your life, you won't be able to sidestep it, ignore it, or mock it. It's a long, dark, menacing cloud over the horizon of our lives. No matter how financially secure, physically fit, academically qualified, professionally successful, relationally fulfilled, emotionally happy, death will have the last words. My first encounter with death was a friend of mine called Stuart Crocker. He was a friend at school, a fantastic rugby player, life and soul of the party. One night, just after passing his driving test at the age of 16, he got in the car, drove off with some friends, and hit a truck head-on, and they were all killed. And I remember the headmaster coming in to explain that Stuart's who was there yesterday sitting just next to me, 
who was due to be at the rugby match on Saturday, was now dead. My second encounter with death was my cousin David. He was very close to me, a very successful lawyer, bright, father of two, a professional man, an amazing attorney that you would go to if you were in trouble. Suddenly on the island of Malta, at the age of 51, without any explanation, a searing pain in his chest, he fell to the floor with a heart attack and died. Some try to diminish the power of death. She's not dead, she's just passed on. He's just in the room next door. Others laugh at it like an Oscar Wilde who on his deathbed declared, I hate this wallpaper. One of us is gonna have to go. <laughs> Others rail at the terror of death like the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas who on the deathbed of his father cried, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the lights. Or Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, who wrote this, you're born alone, you will die alone, does anything else really matter? Sometimes I think it's like an on-off switch, click, and you're gone. It's why he said, I hate putting the on-off switch on Apple devices. But what if this morning there was a pathway through death? What if there was someone who could escort us through the terror of the grave, safe to the other side, to a perfect new universe, to a world of perfection? What if there was an answer to the coffin. What if the cemetery did not have the last word? Because that's what I want to talk about as we open Mark chapter five, as we come to Jesus at a desperate scene and a family funeral. Have a look at Mark five and verse 22 as we meet a broken man and a scene that strikes terror into the heart of every parent. This desperate father calls for Jesus. It's an emergency, a 911. My 12-year-old little girl is dying. Verse 22, a synagogue leader named Jairus came, and he saw Jesus, and he fell at his feet, and he pleaded with him, my daughter is dying. Please come, put your hand on her, that she will be healed and live. Hear the panic in his voice. By the time Jesus arrives, verse 35, it looks like it's too late. They come and they say, your daughter is dead. This is heart-wrenching. This is the ultimate agony. There is no pain like the death of a child, and some here know that. It's hopeless. The doctor has signed the death certificates. The body is in the coffin. There's loud wailing, the priest has arrived to take the funeral, the hearse is outside the house. There's no turning back now, certified dead. No turning back, but for the fact that God's king is here, and that his mission on earth is to heal the pain and reverse death and lead us to a new life beyond the grave forever. Amen. 
God's king, up close and personal, in the agony of death, a family tragedy, parents who have just lost their children. So to claim now that you have power over death better be true. To claim now in a family funeral at the cemetery that you can somehow reverse death if you can't is a sick joke. He goes into the room. There's deathly silence. The child's complexion and ashen gray, a stiff body, this lifeless 12-year-old girl, the frozen silence shattered with the words, Talitha Kaum, little girl, I say to you, get up. Imagine saying that to a corpse on the slab in the mortuary. It would be audacious, but outrageous. Because the whole point of death is its finality. There is no way back from death. And then her eyes begin to open. Maybe she splutters or coughs. And then the astonishment, first the horror of this corpse coming back to life, and then the sense of, is this really happening? Are we in a dream? As her mother runs towards her, as her father grips her, as the euphoria and joy take over, as they realize that this Jesus, this, this king from God on earth, has brought their girl back from the grave. Amen. It's Sean's story, back from the grave. It's my story too, I used to be an atheist a card-carrying conviction atheist. I didn't believe in God. I wanted nothing to do with him. His word came to me. Friends told me the great good news of this king of power, this, this gods of love. And what this king of power, this god of love will do, if only we'll place our hands into his, is escort us from this world of death through the grave and into the life of the world to come, a place of perfection where there will be no more hospitals because there will be no more sickness, no more tears because there will be no more death, a perfect physical world where everything is only ever good all of the time, nothing to harm, spoil, or deface. She's not dead, she's asleep, says Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, death was regarded as sleep. For one day, we will all awake, either to the life of the world to come, in all of its perfection, or to final judgment, which Jesus will execute as God's universal king. There's an extraordinary story I was hearing about just last week, which has just come out from Buckingham Palace. There was a workman, and he was mending this desk and he was underneath the desk in the palace. And suddenly he saw some feet. And he said to the servant, um, I need a cup of tea, he said. In a mug, two sugars, builder's tea, none of that nonsense I had here last time with china and saucer stuff. Just get me a mug of tea. And the voice said, of course, I'll bring it to you straight away. The rather well-spoken lady came back about five minutes later and placed the mug of tea, as requested, on the table next to him. And as he began to emerge from the table underneath, 
Who should it be that was bringing the mug of tea but Her Majesty the Queen? She said, I hope that's all right for you, and walked out of the room. No saucer, china, or any of that nonsense as requested a mug of tea. Jesus is God's king on earth. <clears throat> and it's very embarrassing not to recognize him, how embarrassing for that workman. But God's king on earth here to serve us, not in giving us a cup of tea and a mug, but meeting our ultimate need in the face of our ultimate terror, death. He consistently talks like God on earth. On one occasion he said, I and the Father are one. If anyone has seen me, he's seen the Father. On another occasion he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Because he walks on water and calms the storm, he heals the sick, he brings back the dead to life, eventually dying himself and three days post-mortem, triumphing over his own death. But how precisely can this Jesus save me? And the answer is all to do with what he has come to achieve at the cross. And Mark makes this point for us because he operates as a very sophisticated editor. And if you look carefully at the story, there's something weird in the way that Mark does it. In verse 22 to 23, we are dealing with a dying girl a story that is resolved in verse 35 to 43. And then in the middle, we go to another story and to another desperate woman who's bleeding and hemorrhaging and has been hemorrhaging blood for 12 agonizing years. It's a medical condition that she can't have healed. She's been to primary care and urgent care. She's been to the hematologists and the gynecologists. She's taken drugs. She's run out of medical care. There's nothing that can be done bleeding for 12 years. And the point about this picture is that in the Old Testament, any emission of blood like this made you ritually unclean, unfit for the presence of God or amongst his people. She would have been shunned as a leper, ostracized, unable, to know the people of God's, or God in his perfection. And this bleeding woman strikes chords for us all. She stands as a picture of our plight, because all of us have turned away from God. We've shaken our fists in his face, sometimes religiously as we come to church and ignore him for the rest of our lives, but other times quite deliberately. We've said to God, no, you will not rule my life. No, back off. We shunt God out into the wings and take center stage and seek to take his crown and place it on our own heads. The picture here is of pollution because we're dirty, sullied, filthy. We are unclean. Imagine going to the cinema this coming week and you sit down for the movie, it's a Tom Hanks movie or something like that, and you've got the popcorn and the Coca-Cola and you're sitting there waiting for the movie. It goes dark, the curtains open, and then suddenly to your surprise, it's actually your life on the big screen. At first you think, oh, this is gonna be 
kind of interesting, and there'll be great things to see. And then it suddenly occurs to you that what is about to be played in front of all of your friends, colleagues, and neighbors is everything. Everything you've ever done in public and private, everything you've ever said behind people's backs, and everything you have ever thought. I reckon we'd want to crawl out of there. But on the day when Jesus comes back as judge, that's what's going to be played. And there will be no defense attorney able to take the case. There'll be no plea in mitigation. <clears throat> There'll be no possibility of an appeal to the Supreme Court or of clemency from the president. Because what I deserve is God's eternal judgments and his eternal punishments in the place that Jesus Christ, in love and in warning, calls hell. That's what I deserve. But on the cross, this God of power and man of love, having lived a life of perfection, he goes to the cross of Calvary, and as he hangs there, what's happening is that all the guilt from my life and then the judgment I deserve is placed onto him in full. Some years ago, a friend of mine was cycling through a major city in the world and he accidentally got caught in a drain. What happened was the bike turned upside down and he was forced up into the air and then down. And his head hit the ground in full. He was taken to hospital, he was rushed in an ambulance. And in the uh, emergency room, they said to him, you are alive for one reason alone. It's that you were wearing a helmet because the helmet took the full force of the fall. And on the cross, Jesus took the full force of God's wrath and rightful anger against us. I used to be uh, an attorney in London and we had an office in a place called Temple, right in the middle of London. And I had a room on the top floor, and on a sunny day, you'd look out across the River Thames to the city of London, and all the gold objects in the ancient city of London would shine. You could see two from my room. The first was the top of the central criminal court called the Old Bailey. And on top of the Old Bailey is a fascinating figure called Lady Justice. She stands blind. She holds the scales and then a sword. Because what happens in court is you're weighed. And if you're found guilty, the sword of justice must fall on you. That's justice. And then right next to the Central Criminal Court is another building called St. Paul's Cathedral. And on top of St. Paul's is another golden object, the cross. Because I'm found wanting, and the sword should fall on me. But instead, it falls on Jesus. This is why Christians have the audacity to call the day on which he died Good Friday, and have the audacity to have around their necks little crosses. We may as well be wearing little electric chairs or hangman's nooses. We boast in the cross because it is through the cross 
that we are saved, and the Jesus who died then rose from the grave on that first Easter Sunday. I don't know much about sewing, but when I watch it, it is extraordinary. You see the needle going through and then out. But what the needle is doing is it's going through and coming out and pulling the thread. And it's like that with Jesus. He is the only man, the first man to go through death and then to come back to tell the story. And therefore, if only we'll place our faith and trust in him, he's like the needle that goes through death and he pulls the thread through, through his perfect life, saving death and triumphant resurrection. If you place your faith in him, there is hope beyond the grave. The story is told of a Yale student, very bright guy, heading off to Manhattan to make money. And his professor sat him down just before he graduated, and he said, um, so what, what after Yale? He said, I'll become a stockbroker on the streets. And then, well, then I'll become a partner in the firm. And then, well, then I'll live the American dream. And then, well, then I'll buy a villa in Bermuda and a uh, ski lodge in Colorado. And then, well, then I'll retire to Florida and play golf. And then, well, then I'll die. And then, and it is that final and then, and that only final and end, which matters. And this morning, let me just say that you're one prayer away from accepting the love of Jesus, this God of power, this man of love who loves you, who's died on the cross for guilty sinners like us. As news of the Titanic uh, was coming in to Southampton, which is where she sailed from, Nervous passengers arrived at the quayside for news of what had happened to their fathers, mothers, sisters, cousins, nieces, and nephews. And a board was set up on the quayside, and every so often as news was telegrammed through, the clerk would take a name and then place it on the board. But the board had only two columns. The first column read, known to be saved, the second, known to be lost. And this morning, there is that division amongst us. If you're trusting in Christ, his perfect life, saving death, triumphant resurrection, you are known to be saved. But without Christ, I have to warn you, you have no assurance, and in the face of death, it is a terrifying prospect to die and face the judgment of God forever alone. And that's why I'm going to end today with a prayer. You can see it on your sheets, and it's a chance for you to join me in a prayer of request to Jesus, of asking his forgiveness, of turning to him as savior, and King. I don't believe in putting words into people's mouths, so it's on the screens behind us. It's also on your bulletins. 
If this is a prayer that you'd like to pray this morning, as I say it out loud, echo it in your heart. If not, just listen in. And in a minute or two, we're going to have a chance for questions, because it may be that you're not ready to pray this, but you have got some questions. And during the offering, and if you're a guest, please don't give anything. We don't want your money. We just want your questions. So fill in this question slip. Put your question there. Put that in the plate. It'll be brought through the front, and we'll have just a brief time for me to answer any of your questions. But here's a prayer, if you'd like today, to place your life into the hands of Jesus and for him to be the God, the Lord and Savior, even over your grave. Let's be quiet as together we pray. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you, and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I might be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I might live with Jesus as my ruler and savior forever. Amen.